Folks, this is Shaq Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 30th, uh, 2017, and this is episode 2013 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Tuesday. That means this is just Jack's show, and I've got a good one for you today. It was one I thought would be like a layup for me, but man, preparing for this one actually ended up being a bear. It's uh, 10 to 2, and I'm just starting recording today. Usually I'm getting close to being done recording by now, so show might have been out a bit later today, and if so, that is why. What are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about cooking with the Weber Kettle Grill. Now, here's the thing. Let's say you don't like the Weber Kettle Grill or whatever. If you are a person that likes grilling or wants to know more about grilling, you'll enjoy today's show. Almost everything I'm going to talk about today can be done in one way or another on just about any charcoal grill. Uh, some of the techniques may even help you with uh, with gas grilling, though that's really not the focus today because the Weber kettle is a charcoal grill. Now, why the Weber kettle? I, I, I have actually been asked, Jack, do you think, because you talk about it all the time, the Weber kettle is the best grill that there is? No, I, I don't. Well, then the next question is, well, why is that what you choose to use? Why do you talk about it so much? Why do you recommend it so highly? Because I think for under $200, it is far and away the best grill you can get your hands on. It's versatile. It's it's very um, portable as well, even for a full-size grill. It doesn't weigh hardly anything. It's amazing how well it, it works for how lightweight it is. And what that means is if I'm going camping, like even by myself somewhere, meeting some people where I'm loading up the truck alone, I just grab the damn thing with one hand, lift it up, stick it in the back of the truck, throw a bungee or a ratchet strap on it, and we're good to go. And I've got a full-size grill, and I can take some of the accessories we'll talk about today or just some bricks and skewers or something like that. And I have all kinds of cool things I can do with that thing out camping or tailgating or whatever. It's also the case that the dadgone thing has been around since 1952, and it's been around in its first current form or close to its current form since 56. Uh, that's a long time. This is a grill that our grandparents and for some of us our great-grandparents cooked on. This was a grill that symbolized kind of when the baby boobers came or the, the World War II generation came home in the, in, the, in the 40s from World War II and got married and settled down and as a lot of them that were younger people kind of grew up and came into their own in their 30s and the golden age of, of automobiles in America happened in the 50s. The, 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 the decade they gave us the 57 Chevy for God's sakes. But it was, it was the, the Weber kettle that was thrown into the back of the 47 Ford pickup. Right or or what have you, and 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 it went out with our with our grandparents or our great grandparents into the the countryside when, when people discovered the concept of um, you know RVs uh, and, and and camping and stuff and like I mean it always existed but with the new interstate the Eisenhower interstate system um, with the booming economy and people being able to afford cars and new cars and this this advent of this new funky shaped thing it became part of America. And yet today, I, I bet you it is still the most popular charcoal grill in America you know, almost 60 years later. So there's something to it, and it's still very well built. I mean, yeah, some of the manufacturing's been moved and all, and a lot of stuff happens overseas now, but Weber's done a good job of ensuring quality control and adapting to the modern economy and still preserving that quality. They're great grills. I've got one now that's three years old. I don't even cover the damn thing. And except for the fact that the handles are faded, it's still as good as the day I bought it. 
and I don't take as good a care of, good a care of it as I should. They're they're just a great tool, and if you know how to use one, it's kind of like learning to drive an old four on the floor, right, or a three on the tree. If you learn to do that, you can drive anything, except one of those nine hundred geared shifter freaking semis, which I don't worry about that. But you know what I'm saying. So it's a cool grill. It does a lot. We're going to talk about it, accessories for it, and techniques and hacks for it today in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was... Do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. There's actually a lot that was going on in this year. Um, I have two from Alex Shrug today and one from Southpaw Ben with commentary by both Alex and Ben. I'm probably going to read that one for you. From Alex Shrugged, I have, Please don't shoot the surfer dude, delivery gal, old lady, whatever. And that's the story of Chris Donner, who was the LAPD uh, police officer who uh, went on a shooting spree and had to be tracked down. And police shot at quite a few people that weren't him and unfortunately did not kill those people by some sort of miracle. Uh, Boston blows it big time. Of course, that's the Boston bombing, also contributed by Alex Shrugged. The one I'll be reading today, Edward Snowden proves tinfoil hats are reasonable, contributed by Southpaw Ben. Uh, before that, some notable deaths this year. James M. Buchanan, 93 Natural Causes. He was Cato Institute Fellow and Economist in the same school as Hayek. Hugo Chavez died this year, age 58, of respiratory infection. He was a socialist, president of Venezuela. His last words were, Yo no quiero morir, por favor no me dejon morir. Which means, I don't want to die, please don't let me die. Unfortunately, Hugo, it's something we all do, and... Uh, I don't know. I don't have any, you know, great dance on the man's grave or anything. But of, of people that could leave the world a little early, uh, he's he's not exactly on on the on the list of ones that you'd worry too much about. Margaret Thatcher died at 87 is a stroke uh, from a stroke. Of course, she was the prime minister of the UK. Tom Clancy died age 66, undisclosed, likely heart related. And Corey Montoth died of uh, a heroin OD. A heroin overdose at age 31. He was Finn in TV's Glee. Never watched that show, so I really don't have any context for it. This year in film, we have Frozen. Oh, that song. Oh, it just went on forever. The Hobbit and Star Trek Into Darkness, Man of Steel, and Lone Survivor. Lone Survivor. Uh, I actually liked Lone Survivor. I really did. Uh, this year in TV, Al Jazeera buys current TV from Al Gore. Gore refuses the offer from Glenn Beck and sells out to Big Oil. Because that'll help the environment. Uh, Time Warner Cable refuses ads for firearms. 60 Minutes is caught lying about Benghazi. Red Eyes Greg Gutfield calls comedian Jim Carrey the most pathetic tool on the face of planet Earth for Carrey's anti-gun video. This year in music, we have Blurred Lines from Robin Thicke, Thrift Shop from Macklemore with Ryan Lewis, Locked Out of Heaven from Bruno Mars, and Cruise from Florida Georgia Line. Baby, you want to make me roll my window down and cruise. 
Um, in other news this year, George Zimmerman is acquitted of all charges in the fatal shooting of Trayvon Martin. Uh, the Chernobysk meteor explodes over Russia, injuring almost 1.5 million people and damaging over 4,300 buildings. The Journal of Pediatrics confirms there is no scientific link between vac vaccines and autism. Um, it, it, more info on that. The other top concern of parents is administering too many vaccines in one day. And Alex says, well, I'm glad that is all settled now. It's not settled. Uh, the first 3D gun is printed in Austin, Texas, that we know of being the first one anyway. And a bunch of other stuff that seems more important than the above. Let's take a look at Edward Snowden proves tinfoil hats are reasonable. In May, an NSA contractor takes leave and travels to Hong Kong, allegedly to get treatment for his epilepsy. He meets with several members of the Guardian Wall there. On June 5th, the first of many reports on classified materials he has given them is published, revealing over 120 million Verizon customers have had their phone records collected by the NSA. From this point on, the reports come one after another, showing just how far down the rabbit hole the NSA is. Among this information is evidence the NSA has been spying on Brazilian emails and our European allies, among other foreign nations. My take by Southpaw Ben. Many people in the liberty movement saw this as proof they needed to get the American people to see how bad the government has gotten. While I completely agree that the NSA should not have been spying on U.S. and many of the same people shouting the loudest over this, we're also complaining about the NSA spying on our allies. This is where I disagree with them. The NSA's job is to spy on potential threats to the U.S., which can include our allies. While I don't think the U.S. should be meddling in other countries' elections, collecting intelligence from them is what's going on behind closed doors should be expected. My take by Alex Shrugged on a related topic, there's a discussion in the Trump administration on how to balance the need for the NSA to exploit vulnerabilities in software and the duty to protect U.S. citizens from those vulnerabilities by telling a company such as Microsoft to fix them. The Obama administration tried to keep that balance and failed. I doubt the Trump administration will do any better because there's always a good reason to keep a secret. You know the ransomware um, attack that you know maligned Bitcoin and, and what have you? Yeah, um, NSA knew about that vulnerability. They knew about that vulnerability. Uh, Microsoft, though, actually found the vulnerability and fixed it several months before uh, the ransomware attack happened. But... If you notice, the countries that were most affected were European countries, uh, and it was a, a very a much earlier uh, version of Windows than, than what most people are running now, um, and uh, they just didn't get updated. And uh, anyway, that's just one side of this. Here's my thing about this. I, I think a lot of people out there still have a, a negative image of Edward Snowden, and, and I, I really would recommend that people see the movie Snowden. I really would. Um Any Hollywood production is going to have some things added to it and some things sensationalized. But from my research, the movie Snowden is as close to factual as any such movie would ever be. Again, there's some theatrics and stuff in it, but the, the overall storyline, including the motivation behind why Snowden did what he did, is, is very accurate, that movie, and it's a damn good movie. My, my personal opinion of Edward Snowden is, as far as I'm concerned, the man's a hero. Because he told the American people the truth about their government committing illegal actions. And the government's right back to doing it, folks. Don't think they're not. The government's right back to doing the same shit. But even they had to admit, yeah, we're not supposed to be doing this. Uh, yeah, we're busted red-handed with this. And it was 
It was having members of our government lie on the floor of Congress to the, the face of Congress and therefore the people that say, no, we don't do this. We don't do this. And Snowden knew we were doing it. And the explanations that he had been given about how they were protecting rights didn't match with the reality on the ground. And that's when he decided he had to do something. Now, people that would put this guy down, I, point out, I would like to point out, had he gone another route, he could have become a very wealthy man using that information or leveraging that information. Instead, he gave the information to the press, and he ended up exiled in Russia. He's stuck in Russia now. And, and the right-wing talking heads seem to, to like be happy about the fact that he's stuck in Russia now. And uh, I just wonder, when you, when, you, when you spout off smaller government, liberty, and things like that all the time as a profession, how do you can turn a blind eye to a government who's willfully spying on its people in an illegal manner? That's what I, I think everybody really needs to get about this. Whether you get why Snowden did, did what he did or not, our government was breaking their own laws in what they were doing. And directly assaulting, therefore, the people of the United States of America. And again, they're right back to doing it. You have no expectation of privacy anymore. And they are collecting all of this information. And they are building dossiers on every American out there. Now, there's not somebody sitting there with, you know, like you think old school with a, a folder that has your name on it, the permanent record that Sasquatch carried around on top of a unicorn when you were in school. I'm not talking about that. The, the, the data is there. And then when they want to assemble it, they can assemble it. So it's kind of an on-demand dossier on American citizens. And the danger that that poses long-term, if our government becomes more and more tyrannical, which it seems to be doing, is enormous. It's enormous. I, I just want you to think what it might have been like had that technology existed for Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong. If we had the technology of today in those times, the, 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 the horrible things that happened would have been multiplied by tenfold or more. It's just something to think about if you think that it's okay, because it's not. All right, folks, I want to remind you one more time about the Members Support Brigade. That's the way you can help support this show by becoming a member of our MSB. So go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. But I want to give you six of the more than 60 discounts we get today. All of these pertain to growing your own food. Marsh Creek Farmstead can give you discounts on the Irapan and Comfrey Cuttings. Bob Wells Nursery gives you 10% off all of their offerings, bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines that grow food in your own backyard. And then we have four great seed companies that all do really great discounts. For you, NE Seeds, Terroir Seeds, the Victory Seed Company, and High Mowing Seeds. If you take advantage of those with your homesteading activities throughout the year, those alone will probably pay for your membership. And hey, you know what? There's still over 60 more companies offering discounts on things you're probably buying anyway. So get by the survivalpodcast.com today, click on members to learn more, and sign up. And if you've let your membership last lapse, remember now would be a great time to come on back to the Survival Podcast MSB. All right, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Certainly better subject matter than we talked about in the history segment. Um, I want to give you a little history of the Weber Kettle Grill and uh, you know why it's called that, who invented it, and, and how it started out. Um, the guy that invented the Weber Kettle is a guy named George Stephen. And George Stephen was a partner in a company called the Weber Brothers Metalworks in Chicago, Illinois in 1952. And one of the biggest contracts the company had was they were making buoys, like for 
sit in the water so boats can know where to go and what to do. So they're making these buoys. And uh, he, he looks at this buoy, and if you think about the way a buoy is shaped with that big round top to it, thinks, if I cut the top off one of these and flip it over and make a lid for it in some kind of a rudimentary stand, I'll get a pretty cool grill out of it. So he tried it, and it worked really, really good. So by 1956, he redesigned it to look a lot like it does today. The, the grills changed a little bit over the years, but pretty much from the 80s on, the, the grill pretty much still looks the same. They've done some things to change it that I'll talk about in a minute. But uh, even by 1956, the basic design, the format, the dimensions was there. They, they did a lot of different things with venting and stands and stuff like that, but the basic concept was pretty solidified by 56. Well, also by that time, um, they started selling really, really well. And from 1956 to 1959, what, what this guy did was form a division within the company so that he could focus on the grill and let his other partners do whatever they wanted to do. By 1959, in three years, his division was doing so well, and he probably was pretty smart about how he designed his own you know, bonus structure for his new division. He was able to turn to his partners and say, listen, I don't want to jack around with buoys or you know, scaffoldings or what anymore. This is what I want this company to do now. I want to build grills. Here's some money. Go away. And they did. They sold out their interest. He became the sole owner in the company by switching to the kettle grill. And, of course, Weber grew into this incredibly large company, uh, bringing gas grills in heavily in the 1980s. That's when the first Genesis came out and has continued to evolve and develop over time and has become the premier, I would say, the premier grill brand in America. And they make some pretty advanced high-end grills, especially their gas grills. Some of their gas grills that go for like a couple thousand dollars are the stuff of what would be in a, you know, a high-end restaurant. Uh, they're just that good and that amazing. Yet this kettle just doesn't go away. And it's not some sort of nostalgia that's kept it around, I guess, from the company standpoint. The company still makes it because it's still one of the best-selling tools out there. And, and as I was saying in the intro section, it's because it works so well, it is so portable, it is so versatile, and there is a nostalgia in the community for the Weber kettle. It just doesn't seem to go away. There are people that just basically span Craigslist and they feel like they're adopting an orphan when they find an old kettle that somebody's selling. And sometimes these people, I've looked on the forums and stuff, they're finding kettles that are 25, 30 years old that look pretty bad, but you go out and clean them up and they, they, they're like the day they were made almost. Maybe a part here or there needs to be replaced, but overall they hold up for that kind of time even when they're not well cared for. And these guys get excited when they find a 25, 30-year-old kettle that they can put back into service. And some of these people on these forums have five, six of these, these freaking grills. And the thing is, you can afford to. Uh, the kettle that I recommend, when, if you're buying a new one, is the Weber Kettle um, Premium version, which the big difference between that and the basic version is the basic version just has... Vent slots on the bottom and a little pan that ashes fall to get caught, and there's a, a gap there. There's nothing that contains it, which means that stuff can get blown away in the wind. Uh, the the premium model that's 150 bucks versus the the basic model is 100 bucks. I really think the 50 bucks is worth this. Has a catch uh, catch cup that, that that slots in and turns and twists and locks, 
so that the vents then drop the ash into that containment system. It doesn't blow all over. It doesn't cause problems. And it also has a system on the bottom where if you, when you go to close and open the vents, if you turn it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, it will clean out the bottom and knock all the ash down into the pan, which you can then spread on your, your lawn because it's good fertilizer. Lots of potash in there. And uh, so, so that's the one that I recommend. And if you think about that, a $150 grill, a decent gas grill is $500. Bucks. There's some really cool charcoal grills out there that are $400, $500, $600, big green egg, you know, $800 and, and more. And a person could go out and pick up three kettle grills and still be under $500. Bucks. And that's a lot of versatility. I know people that have actually set up two or three or four kettle grills, kind of basically you could change them whenever you want to, but they pretty much have them set up with some of the accessory type stuff we have going today so that they just fire them up. Or, you know, when they're cooking a lot, they might have one fired up to do some cooking, but then they have another one to do their vegetables on quick at the end or what have you. And it's because they're affordable, they're relatively small in footprint, yet they cook a lot of food on them that, that people do this. And it's it's one of the things I really like about it. And again, I love how lightweight they are. I mean, again, if, uh, one of my favorite uses for my kettle grill, honestly, and I haven't done this in a while, and I really need to make the time and go freaking do it again, is I go fishing on the on the Texas coast. I just go surf fishing. And it's about a five-and-a-half-hour drive for me, which ain't that bad. And I'll camp right on the beach. There's still beach here in Texas you can drive your vehicle on. And I'll set up, and we'll fish. And if we catch fish, great. If we don't catch fish, spend a day at the beach and cook on, on the Weber kettle. And it's, it's such an easy thing to throw that thing in the back of a truck. And a lot of people have these small portable grills and stuff like that. It's like they're never as good as this thing. And as, you know, if you have a, an SUV or something, it might be a bit different. You can get dirty inside there and all. And I understand that. But if you have a pickup truck, there's just no reason not to throw your kettle in the back of the truck. So that's another reason I think people love them. Getting into cooking, I, I want to talk about a few things that people need to have in their head when you're cooking on a charcoal grill that will always result in having better results for you than if you don't think about them. The first one is what you're cooking designed, or should it be cooked low and slow or hot and fast? There's some middle ground, and we'll talk about some of that with some of the techniques and hacks today. But in the end, most most meats that you're going to cook anyway are really designed from a standpoint of how they are as far as their fibers and their, their sinews and how heavily that muscle group has worked to either excel at a quick, hot, fast cooking or low and slow cooking. Let's do some extremes, okay? A brisket. If we take a, a whole brisket, trim some of the excess fat on it, and cut a one-inch steak off of a piece of brisket, and we cook that like we would perfectly cook a piece of New York strip or ribeye or something like that. Um, we get a good sear on it. We cook it to a beautiful medium in the middle. It is going to be tough as shoe leather because it's such a working muscle and because of the way the fibers are in it, because of the way the fat marbles in it, because of the, 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 the structure of a brisket. It is just not designed in any way whatsoever to be cooked hot and fast. It just doesn't work. That's why there's, you know, corn, corn beef briskets and there's, some people make brisket in, you know, they simmer a brisket with cabbage, a corned beef brisket, and then that's pretty good. So what we're doing today, but that's a way, but if you look at all the ways there are to make briskets, it's a long time at a low temperature, slowly bringing it up to temperature, breaking down sinews and fat. Another example is beef short ribs. 
I did beef short ribs yesterday for Dorothy and I from the cow that we bought from the guy down the street. A beef short rib is kind of right off kind of that same brisket area, and that meat's the same way, and it's loaded with fat and, 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 and connective tissues. And you can't cook that meat fast and get a result that you're really going to like. You can cut it up and cube it up, throw it on a kebab and cook it hot and fast. It won't taste bad. It actually tastes pretty good. It's just going to be tough. So there's certain cuts that we can do low and slow or we can do hot and fast, but there are certain cuts that they just predispose themselves to that. Okay? Um, let's go to the other extreme, something that just wouldn't work low and slow. Get out of the world of red meat. Let's go to shrimp. If you want to put shrimp on the grill, throw a shrimp on the barbie, as they say in Australia, great. They don't cook low and slow. If you cook shrimp low and slow, you will get something that is just terrible. It will be chalky, pasty. In fact, if it cooks too long, even hot and fast, it'll get that way. Shrimp, if you put shrimps on a kebab, you get them over high heat, you get them done as fast as you can, and as soon as they're done, you get them off, or you'll ruin them. Some things we can do different ways. We could we can take a cut like a ribeye, and we can do it hot and fast in a steak, or we can leave it whole and we can do it low and slow and slow like a prime rib. It'll go either way if we have enough mass to it and we use the right technique. But we we always need to look at what we're going to cook and say to ourselves, how would this best be cooked? If we take something like chicken breast and make it relatively thin give it a good marinade so that it has some juiciness to it or a light brine and marinade and cut it thin, we can throw that on the grill and cook it hot and fast. But if we're going to cook a whole, you know, like whole chicken breast half, skin on, bone in, it's going to do a lot better if we kind of give it a little bit of a sear and move it over an indirect low and slow. All right? Or if we're cooking a whole chicken. We're not going to cook a whole chicken hot and fast. It just it doesn't work. We need to think it. We'll talk about cooking whole chickens today on a Weber kettle and some, some cool ways to do that. But if, if we just start off with that, then we, we really get into the mindset of let's create the proper environment for the food that we're going to cook today. And that tells us that, well, if it's going to be low and slow, I need to get my ass out of bed you know, before 8 a.m. and start getting things going so that it can sit out there all day and do its thing. If it's going to be hot and fast, then I need to think about how I'm going to arrange my charcoal to best do that. And I have to think about, well, what else is going with this food so that I can get everything kind of done at the same time so that it all comes together in the end. That's why uh, one of the most popular things in the world for as far as people that are grilling would be something like steak, potatoes, and a salad. Because potatoes are very forgiving. I'm going to talk about some cool ways to make potatoes today, to you know keeping them hot or whatever, not overcooking on you, especially if they're sealed up or what have you, and not over direct heat. Um, steak, we're going to get it done, and when it's done, we're going to put it on the plate, let it rest, and eat it, and we just throw those potatoes there. And a salad's pre-made. We might even eat the salad before the steak goes on the grill and put some time in between the two of them. Or we can put the steak and the potatoes on the plate. We can put the salad and plate that up. Eat the salad first while the steak rests and the potatoes cool because they're piping hot and will burn the roof of your mouth. That's, that's, that's how that came about. It wasn't just that they went well together. But if I grill broccoli with steak, now that's good, but the broccoli and eating it with the steak, I gotta really time it all. I gotta think more about that, right? Corn on the cob is another thing. Holds its heat really, really well. So it can fit in with that steak and potatoes really easily. So if you're, if you're doing something like that that's hot and fast, 
And you start thinking about your science, think about things that you can kind of put together in, in, a, in a, a timeline that will work for you. It will make your life easier and less stressful because grilling should reduce stress. Not If grilling is increasing stress, you're doing it wrong. It's kind of like if you're shooting a rifle with a scope on it, you're getting hit in the eye with your scope. You have a cross over your your uh, your your uh, between your forehead, right over your nose. You're shooting it wrong. That's the only way that happens. It's not the gun's fault. You did it wrong. So if grilling is stressing you out, you've done it wrong. Patience and time is a big important thing with charcoal grilling. All right. So I want to also talk about base marinades and brine and what the difference is and 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 how they best suit being used. Let's start out with marinades and base. Because unlike a brine, a marinade could make a good base, and a good base could make a good marinade. Not that they always will, but they could. We've got to look at what the goals are. Marinades are designed to add flavor to whatever you're marinating. They're not really designed for tenderization. Well, you definitely get some tenderization and some juiciness from a marinade. Usually a marinade is for something that you're going to cook relatively hot and fast. A brine is designed to actually tenderize the protein. Here's, here's how a brine works. What, what you're doing is your, your primary use in a brine is salt. And my go-to on a brine is per two cups of water, a tablespoon of kosher, kosher salt. So you're gonna, if you need, you know, four cups, then you use two tablespoons. And you can just kind of go from there. And you can, you can expand that up and, and measure by cups if you're getting into the gallons, if you're doing larger brines. But just, you know, two cups of water to a tablespoon of kosher salt. And I use salt and sugar. But what's gonna happen when we, we take that meat and we soak it overnight in salt water is that the concentration of water and salt is greater than the brine than it is in the meat. So the meat absorbs the brine until the concentration of water and salt is equal in the brine and in the meat. So we call that osmosis, right? Uh, once inside the meat, the salt causes the proteins to unwind, and then they become tangled and trap that moisture. And that creates a barrier to prevent moisture loss during the cooking, And that's why you get a juicier, tenderized piece of meat when we brine. So again, low and slow, or even just any long-duration cooking. You would brine, you know, a turkey, or even a turkey breast that was going to be roasted o over time. Now, it doesn't mean you can't brine chicken that you're going to cook relatively quickly. It, it can be done, and it works. But when we do a marinade, instead of relying on salt, we're going to rely on an acid, like, like vinegar or lemon juice, or wine as kind of a core ingredient in that marinade. And then other flavors, lots of herbs and things like that. Now, you can do what I call the jack sheet. And I'm give, once again, I'm giving away shit today that I do that, that people generally don't get to hear about until I finally break down and do it on the air. When you make a brine for something like the short ribs I did yesterday... If you add a couple tablespoons, not a lot, but like a couple tablespoons of something like apple cider vinegar, you get kind of the effects of both. But it's, it's a minimum effect from the apple cider vinegar. But the other thing that's going on, because we have this, this uh, what you have is you have things moving uh, down the concentration gradient here, meaning that, that, that particles, specifically in this case salt, 
will tend to want to move, salt and water will want to move from areas of greater concentration to areas of lesser concentration and create an equilibrium. Okay? So it stands to reason if there's certain flavorings in that brine, they go along for the ride. So, like, here's what I did yesterday. Yesterday when I made up my brine, I did, uh, probably, I think I had about a half gallon of brine, and I used a one-gallon bag and put all the, uh, a one-gallon Ziploc bag. I actually did this the day before. Put all the short ribs in there and uh, mixed up that brine. Into that brine I added probably about two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar. I didn't measure it, just kind of dumped a little bit in there. And I added uh, black peppercorn, uh, dried garlic, dried onion, mustard seed, bay leaf, and um, Thai chilies, red Thai chilies. Put a little bit of spice in the brine. And that sat overnight that way. And I just put it in the Ziploc bag, put the Ziploc bag in a pot, so because it always will leak. Just tr never trust a bag. It's always going to leak some. So I put it in a pot and stuck that pot in the refrigerator for 24 hours and, and let that meat brine up. When that was done, I took that meat out of the brine, and I, when I'm going to cook then, whether I'm going to use a dry rub or not, I'll always let it sit for about an hour at room temperature. Or if you're worried about doing that, then you can let it sit in a refrigerator, let it dry, until when you touch it, it's not wet anymore, it's kind of sticky. It'll get kind of sticky. And that stickiness, that's when you want to add any kind of dry rub, or even if you're just smoking, that stickiness actually grabs onto the smoke a little bit. So that's kind of brining. Again, marinade, what we're looking for is big, bold, herbal flavors. We're looking at some breakdown of the, the proteins through acid, kind of a, almost a pre-cooking. And I have some stuff that I'll talk about later and tell you where you can get some recipes. But, but that's the basic thing. With a baste that we're going to be brushing on during, near the end of cooking, whatever, we're looking to put a coating on the outside. So a lot of marinades will make a good baste, but they wouldn't make a good brine. But I actually like to make my baste a little bit thicker. And I like to do things with a baste like one of the things that gets really maligned is jarred barbecue sauce or, you know, bottled barbecue sauce you buy from a store, you know, Risky's Barbecue or whatever it is. I, I'm not a big fan of dumping that shit on meat, but as an ingredient in a baste, it's really useful. Hot sauces, if you want to bring it up a little bit, herbs, garlic, things like that. But again, really, you're going you're gonna to tailor this to whatever it is you're trying to do. If you're trying to do something that's very Middle Eastern, You know, some, some sumac and some cumin and things like that really kind of fit maybe as an addition to that baste or to that marinade. But if you're trying to do something that's more like a, a Korean barbecue, uh, you know, some, some, uh, some mirin, which is a, a sweetened, uh, uh, product that, that's used in Asian cooking, uh, and some Thai chilies, like, see those things kind of lend themselves in that direction. So just kind of be thinking about that. And that's the difference between the three. And, and the, the base is not really as important as understanding between the brine and the marinade. And again, we're back to, is it an acid or is it a salt? And, and most marinades, You want to use those for your, your, your faster cooking things and brines for your slower cooking things. Not 100%, but it's pretty, pretty spot on. So let's talk about some different accessories for the Weber kettle, and we'll get into some hacks and some things you can do that are pretty cool. One of my favorite things to do is cook meat on skewers. And uh, a lot of people do this on a grill, and they do it wrong. Now, I want you to understand something here. Um, I don't mean to sound like a dick saying like you're wrong if you do this or whatever but you got to look at what is the why was the technique invented and what is it supposed to do 
If we're cooking on skewers, we want cuts of meat and or vegetables or whatever it is that can be cooked relatively quickly over high temperatures of heat. The original cooking on skewers, as best as we can tell, was a technique that involved digging a, 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 a relatively narrow ditch in the ground and then building a hot wood charcoal fire, or even just a hot wood-based fire in the ditch. And a, this was done by, by militaries. We could then put chunks of meat on a, a skewer and just set it over the ditch and cook it really, really quickly. Well, you know, just because the military does something, or you know, just because nomads do something, doesn't mean it sticks around if it sucks. I mean, troops in the Civil War put hardtack and coffee, and you might see some people doing it for nostalgia or whatever, but it's not a thing, right? Nobody's, nobody's like, hey, come over to my house. We're going to have some hardtack and coffee. Right? But skewers are still around because of what this does. It roasts the meat in the heat alone without it being touched by the grill. What does this mean? This means if you take a skewer of meat and throw it on a grill, you might as well have just grilled it. About the only thing it does is let you cook smaller pieces of meat and turn them all at once. But it's not going to result in that, that cooking by the heated air around it without the transfer from the metal from the outside in. So it's not going to get you the same result. So I have some really cool 22 and 14 inch skewers that I have linked to in the show notes today. Here's the big thing that you want in a skewer. You want it to be flat, or in the case of these 22 inch ones, you want them to be shaped more with a V. So that they, when you go to turn something, the, the, the product actually turns instead of the skewer turning inside the meat. That's very frustrating. And what makes it really frustrating is when it only happens to half the meat. So that now you got to go in there and, and hold with tongs, and it kind of defeats the entire purpose. I want to talk about some things you can do to cook with skewers to get this done. Number one, with your Weber kettle, one of the things you can do really easy here, especially with your 14-inch skewers, is you get yourself a, a couple bricks and put them inside the grill. Uh, maybe two stacks to get the height that you're looking for, depending on how high you're going to make your coals, and build a fire between them. And then you set your skewers down on those bricks and cook straight over the coals. This will get you pretty close to the coals. The 22-inch skewers, the Weber grill is 22 inches round. Now here's the thing. The handles on these, the way they're designed, the ones that I, I, I recommend, you really don't want the whole handle, so they don't really fit across the grill. But here's one way that you can do this. You take any random steel rod and you lay it across. So you take the grill, the grill part off. Okay? So you just take the grill top off. You build your fire down in the fire bowl. And you take just a, a piece of steel rod long enough to go across your grill. And about three quarters of the way across the grill, you just lay it there. And from the other side, you lay your skewers. Now, they're above the heat. And they're not touching anything. You can even just kind of set your lid down on there. It's not going to close right, but it'll hold the heat in if you want to do that and get more of a roasting effect, and, and you can do that as well. So that's that's another way that you can use it. Okay? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to skewers because I've got other accessories that work well with them. But I just want you to realize you don't need any kind of fancy contraption to go with skewers on your Weber Kettle Grill. There's There's... there's Again, I want to say, that even the hacks I want to say for the other accessories. The next thing I want to talk about, and I think that you should have something that does this, even if it's not these. These are just very affordable. Weber makes some charcoal briquette holders. 
that will hold charcoal in a, in a contained area for you. And they take up about, I would say, 25% of the space of the floor of the grill. So if you use two of them, push to each side, you have about half of the grill space with hot coals. And then you have the center of the grill as a cool spot. And there's a lot you can do with this. What a lot of people think is, okay, well, that gives me two spots to kind of sear me, and then I can go to the center, and I'm cooking indirect. Well, sure, it, 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 it does that. But we could also take something like that and make our two, um, our two pans screaming hot coals, remove the cover, and we can cook down on the floor of the grill, something like a beer can chicken. Okay, that's 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 one thing that we could do with that. How about this? We take our two uh, grill uh, biscuit holders, our, our briquette holders, and we fire them up, and we got them nice and hot. We take a, a couple big chunks of pecan or hickory, and I don't care what Keith Snow says, hickory's damn good to cook with, and we soak them. Okay, And now we set a nice, big, beautiful chicken right in the center of the grill that's been brined and seasoned up and allowed to let that brine get sticky before the seasoning was put on it. And we throw those couple chunks of, of, of wood chips on top of those hot coals, and we put the lid on, and we control our temperature with our vents. Now, this is not really going to be low and slow because you got, you're going to be roasting at this point. You've got a lot of heat you're working with here. Okay, but and that's going to give you that like a, it's going to be like roasting a chicken in the oven at like 400 degrees. It's going to take about an hour. So that sounds good, doesn't it? No, doesn't that sound like that's that's getting a chicken done in about the same amount of time that you would be able to do it in your oven. Another nice way to do this and get a more even consistency to it. Take I'll, I'll add a link to these things. I think they're the best ones you can get for the money. Uh, Red Yeti where it makes some kitchen shears. You can use any shears you want. Cut that backbone right out of that chicken. Okay. Then flatten that chicken out butterfly and lay it flat on the grill. It'll cook a lot more evenly and a lot quicker. You want it, you want it to be even cooler? You want, you want something really cool to do with that chicken? Okay. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get parsley. This is all fresh. Parsley, oregano, and sage, and garlic. And I don't know how much, as much as you think you need, and we're going to chop that up and have a nice big pile of it. And we're going to take that and, and, and hit it with some olive oil and kind of make it like a paste. A little bit of salt, and we're going to take some salt and put it on there. We're going to drag our knife across it so it gets paste-like. Okay, It's like the original food processor. Then we're going to take the skin on that butterfly chicken. And, and right up at the top of the breast, we're going to stick our hand. We're going to separate the skin from the flesh with our hand and make pockets. And we're going to shove that herb mixture in there. And then we're going to do the same thing. We're going to find where we can get inside where the thighs and down into the legs. And we're going to shove all of those herbs and olive oil inside the skin. Okay. Then we're going to put a nice, you know, dry seasoning mix on the outside to get it nice and crispy. And we don't have to make it complicated. How about this? Salt, garlic, pepper, paprika, onion. There's, there's just a go-to chicken uh, uh, rub, if you want to call it that. We're just going to sprinkle that on the skin. And, let, and go, like, equal amounts of all, but double the amount of paprika. Paprika is really great with chicken skin, causing it to crisp up. So now we've got the butterfly chicken sitting in the center. We've got the two hot uh, briquette holders off to the side. And there's other accessories that you can do similar things with here. But you know what we have? 
We have this amazing space under the chicken. We have this amazing space down there with heat on both sides of it radiating out. And this beautifully herbed, rubbed, brined, gorgeous chicken sitting up there roasting. What would go great with that? How about potatoes? How about something like roasted fingerling potatoes? So you want this? This is freaking so stupid easy. We're going to take an aluminum pan that will fit in between the briquette holders. We're going to cut fingerling potatoes lengthwise. We're going to throw them in that pan. We're going to add some white wine about a quarter inch deep at the bottom of it. And we're going to, when we go to put our chicken on, we're going to stick that pan down. We're going to take the grill cover off. We haven't put it on yet, really. Take the grill cover off. Put that pan in between those so it's sitting down there roasting on that radiated heat. Put the grill cover on and set the chicken right over it. And the chicken's going to be cooking. And all of that chicken fat and flavor is going to drip down into that pan, incorporate with those potatoes, and roast them. And by the time it's done, they're going to be covered in liquid, so they're not going to dry out. And when the chicken's done, the potatoes will be done. Now, how simple is that? Now, you've just gone from, I'm going to cook some chicken, to you've made a whole butterfly herbed chicken with gorgeous crispy skin and these amazing roasted potatoes roasted in the chicken fat. I, I See, this is why I love the kettle. Because there's so many people that say, well, with a big green egg, I can do this and that. Well, maybe you could do this. I don't know. But I just did it with some charcoal. Now, do you need those little containers to do this? No. What you could do is get a couple bricks, okay, and set those bricks to hold your charcoal where you want it. And if you want airflow, turn them sideways so that the, the holes are exposed. If you want to go a little bit slower, turn them so the, the, the holes are pointed down. Put your charcoal behind those bricks. Go two courses if you want, and you're good to go. Now, what if what you wanted to do was a more low and slow cook like this? Okay, so you wanted to take more time to get there. You could still put something underneath this if you wanted to. But what you would do then is fill your two uh, briquette containers with charcoal, but don't light them. In the center of your grill, in the open space, put, I don't know, eight briquettes there. Hit them with some lighter fluid or put them in your chimney if you're a purist and you think you need to do that. But again, I believe in better living through chemistry. Hit them with some lighter fluid, light them on fire. We'll let them burn until they ash over. Take a pair of tongs and drop them in each one on one end each. And it will take a lot longer as that charcoal crawls across nice and slowly. We can throw some wood chips on there. We can smoke that way. There's better ways to do it, but that way will work just fine. And again, we're, we're down to a $13 accessory is all we've bought at this point. Because we, we've left skewers for a while. And we don't even need it. We can do it with a brick. There's a lot of different things we could do. We can take and use bricks to create basically a box in the center put charcoal all the way on the outside, a circle of charcoal, leave a break in it, an open space, and put some hot charcoal on that end, and it will slowly go all the way around that ring and take a real long time to do it. Or we don't need to go quite that slow. We make a complete continuous ring, and we put charcoal in one spot, and it acts like a snake, and it goes out, and it meets in the middle at the other end. And that's actually a better way generally to do this. And just a couple chunks of wood along the way will give a, lot, a nice smoky flavor. And we can do that by building a box with some bricks. Again, there's accessories that do more than that. 
and that that we'll talk about in a minute, but that's another example of what we can do. Um, moving on, kind of taking like that to the next level, two products I own, I've used both of them, and my opinion on which one is better has changed and gone back and forth here and there. One is called the Slow and Sear, and one is called the Smokinator. The Slow and Sear does more, but the Smokinator seems to do the smoking better, in my opinion. So the, the, the Slow and Sear... It's basically, it looks like a beefed up, deeper version of the briquette holder. And then it's got a water jacket in it. So it's got a V-shaped thing, and it goes all the way across one end of your, your Weber kettle. And you fill that with water, and that helps moderate the temperature. And what you do with that is, you, if you want to smoke with it, you fill it with charcoal. And then you make up, you know, a half dozen briquettes. You put them on one end of it, and it slowly crawls through. You put some wood chips on it. And it's designed to, to control the burn more and use that water as a moderator to keep the temperatures down. And that's one way it can be used. And it's also great for searing. So it's it, because it holds more charcoal than the little uh, briquette holders that, that, that uh, Weber makes, you can get a nice hot bed of coals there. So you take your steak, right? Let's do the salted steak thing next, okay? This is a trick that people use on tough meat, but it works beautifully on ribeye, and ribeye is not tough to begin with. This is the, the salted steak, and it works. It's, God, this will make a sirloin. I think this is actually great for sirloin because sirloin is so much more flavorful than a ribeye, but it's a little bit tougher. And this will make a, a sirloin as tender as a ribeye and give a lot of flavor to the party as well. We want to take a nice, thick piece of sirloin for this. I'm talking like an inch, okay? And then we're going to coat it on both sides with coarse salt. Do not do this with fine salt. Coarse salt, like 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 kosher salt. Okay, so we're going to coat both sides of it. I mean, cake looks like you ruined it. Caked on. If it's three quarters of an inch thick, then you do 45 minutes. If it's an inch thick, you let it sit there for an hour. If it's an inch and a quarter thick, you let it sit there for an hour and 15 minutes. If it's a half inch thick, you let it sit there for 30 minutes. No, 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 no. We don't do half inch thick steak this way. Three-quarter, absolute minimum, one inch and up, best. It sits there. As soon as it's done, we go ahead and we, we take cold water and our turn on our sink and cold water, and we wash all of the salt off of it. Right away, when you feel the meat, the entire consistency will have changed. Okay? A lot of the salt gets some, this makes it a bit salty, but not, not what you're thinking. So we rinse it off. We're going to put on some paper towel, get it nice and dry, and we're going to let it sit till it gets, what's the word? Sticky. Use our steak rub or Chef Keith snake steak seasoning or whatever we want to use. Uh, but the, the problem there now is there's a lot of salt already gone into this meat. So if you use a prepared thing, then you're probably in a position where you're going to have too much salt. So my kind of go-to seasoning for a steak, first of all, you don't need one. You cook this that way, it'll be great. But I like to do uh, onion, dried onion, dried garlic, and black pepper. Um, and I throw those in a spice grinder, equal amounts, and then just give a nice dusting of that on both sides of it after it gets nice and sticky. Now we take our slow and sear, because we're not smoking now, we're searing, and we get a good blazing hot white over coals, and we sear both sides of that steak, and then we move it off to the indirect heat. We do not fill the water jacket when we're doing this. We, we cover it, and we cook it to temperature. And, uh, you know, temperature here is going to be 140 to 145 to ruined. Okay, that's a, that's you know you can go lower than 140. 140 is pretty red. 145 is nice and pink. Get yourself a good 
instant read thermometer and don't overcook your steak. And, and for people that want it well done but not ruined, if you go all the way to 150, it's really a bad thing, but you can do it any higher. You're just stupid. But I find even the most finicky steak eater, if you bring a steak to 147 to 148 and give it time to rest, because you should do anyway, so that if there is any pink or red, when you cut it, it doesn't come out on the plate, they'll generally eat it and think it's wonderful. Okay, But one to me, sirloin 140, New York strip 140, ribeyes tend to seem to do better at 145 for me. But it's up to you. Um, but that's another example of using that for more. So that's the slowest here. Now what about the Smokinator? Smokinator doesn't do the searing part. The Smokinator is a totally different system. It's kind of like a 45-degree bent piece of sheet metal. It goes up to one side of your, your, uh, your Weber kettle. It's got a little pan that sits inside it that fills up with water. You fill it with charcoal. I think it's 12. You take 12 briquettes, stick them in a chimney, or I just put my little pile of 12 and hit them with some lighter fluid and light it, let them burn down. And then they get dropped in the center where the water pan goes. And there's some chunks of wood in there with this. And uh, you put the pan in, you fill it with water, and you cover your Weber kettle grill. You open your bottom vents one half and your top vents one half. And it'll come up. Usually, I've seen it go, it'll come up like 260, 270, and then level off 250. And it holds 250 like you nailed it there. And if you don't think the little thermometers in the dome of a Weber kettle are accurate, you're wrong. They're very, very accurate. They really are. They can go bad, but the way they come, they're accurate. I still like using a probe thermometer when I'm doing low and slow, one that does the, the chamber temperature and one that does the meat temperature. Um, but that's the, that's the Smokinator. It's a one-trick pony. When I first got the slow and sear, I was like, dude, this thing curb stomps the Smokinator. Having smoked with it quite a bit, it's a, the, the, the slow and sear to me, because the top's wide open, it tends to run away on temperature more often, well, I would say somewhat frequently. You get it higher temperatures than you want. Now, part of it's I've tried to film it, and you're opening the thing more than you would and all, but in general, I just find that it runs at a higher temperature than I would like. It's hard to keep it nailed down to 225 to 250. That Smokinator, unless you do something really wrong, like jack with it and get a lot of air in there or something, man, once that thing's dialed in, as long as you keep that water pan full, you're good. Now, the advantage to the, the slow and sear, it holds a lot of water. I think it's like four cups. So your, 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 your Smokinator, you've got to spend a little bit more time with making sure you keep water in that pan because that temperature will climb if that water pan goes dry. So I'm saying about once every 40 minutes, you need to fill that pan up with water. Otherwise, I think for your smoking, you're better off there. Um, now, what do I think the best solution for smoking is? A Bradley electric smoker. It's so damn easy. It really is. You can pick whatever flavor of uh, smoke you want. You get your little biscuits. You throw them in there. You punch a button, and it goes. However, um, I do a lot of smoking with my Weber kettle, and I've been back and forth between these two. And I, I have to say at this point, to have something that does more stuff, uh, the slow and sear is great. It just stays in there unless I have a reason to take it out. Because whenever I'm doing steak on there, I do what I, what I just said, right? And it will do chicken the same way. You want to do indirect heat, but you want to go higher heat, we can put more charcoal, starter charcoal in there. We can light the whole damn thing, put the chicken off center, put our stuff underneath it, all that good stuff. 
and it's just off the one side instead of two sides, but it holds so much more charcoal, it'll do it for you. And it will run at those roasting temperatures really nice, those 300-degree temperatures, 350-degree temperatures really nice, so it's good for that roasting. But if I had it to do again, I probably wouldn't buy one. There's other ways to do it, and if I want the best pure smoking accessory for the Weber kettle, after using both now for over a year each, I'm going to come back and say the Smokinator is the way to go. I have links to both of them, though, in the show notes. Um, another accessory you might consider, and this starts to open up a whole world of things, is the grates that have a removable 12-inch center. Uh, I've looked at a bunch of different varieties, and I found the two that I think are the best value. One is just stainless steel, like comes with the Weber kettle, and it's like 30-something bucks, and it's got a 12-inch center piece that just comes right out. So you got a, you got your grill with a hole in the center. And the other one is a cast iron one. And there's a bunch of different options there. But again, I found the one that I think gives you the best, uh, the best value for the dollar. Uh, it's a, it's a Chinese made one, but it's cast, cast iron's cast iron. It's made by a company called Hongsgo. Uh, and it's $46.59 with free shipping. It's, as compared to some of the other cast iron options without the removable center, um, I like this one best. Now there's one that has, and I don't have a link to it, but it has basically a cross and has four quadrants that come out. So you can take a quadrant off any size. That's nice too, but when I start talking about why I like the center hole, I think you'll understand you know, why, why that's the one that I kind of come down on the side of. The, uh, the stainless steel one is made by Weber. It's $35. Bucks, so it costs less, but you're back to stainless steel. It's a lot like the one that comes with the grill. It's got two sides that open up for adding more charcoal that happen to be about the same size of your biscuit holders, which is really, really nice. You got that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it just kind of works out really nice that way, doesn't it? Okay. And uh, But it's got that 12-inch center where you can just basically grab it with a pair of pliers or a lifting tool and take that centerpiece out. And here's what I think you should do if you get one. Store it with your grill. But it's probably best used only when you want to take the center hole out. Uh, if they sold it without the little drop-in piece, I'd probably buy it that way if it costs less money. Unless you're buying it as a replacement part. It'll work fine, but it does kind of move around sometimes on you and stuff like that. So the, the original one, if yours is in good shape, and it should be for a long time if you take care of it, um, maybe it's better for your day-to-day -day cooking. Because what I like about that center hole is it opens up a whole new world of opportunities. Let's go back to skewers for a minute. So now what we can do is, we remember those bricks? We can make a little square of bricks right underneath that hole. And we can fill it with charcoal, and we can light our charcoal and get our charcoal blazing hot. Okay? Now we can take that center ring off or just never put it on the grill, and we can take something like our 14-inch skewers and put our product on those skewers, And we can set the skewers on the grill surface, but the meat is in the hole over the direct heat. Ain't that cool? That, so that opens up doing skewers on your shorter skewers, uh, and then you still have that ring for indirect cooking at the same time. So we could go and we could do something like, what if we wanted to do something like, we want to do meat skewers and chicken wings. So check this out. We get, we get our chicken rings all ready to go. We get our grill going. We get it nice and hot. We put our chicken wings on the indirect ring all the way around. We throw the lid on. We cook them until they're almost done. Okay? Now, we open up the grill. 
wings stay nice and warm because they're in the indirect zone. We pull the center thing off where we've never put it on. We add some fresh charcoal. We stir it up with a, a, a stick and get it going and get it all nice and blazing hot again. We cook our skewers over top. So we do lamb skewers and chicken wings. And we can serve them together. That's, that's another option we can do. What else that hole does for us, though, is pretty cool. What if we want to do a beer can chicken? Now, the problem is most beer can chickens, if it's a bigger bird, they don't fit well up on top. So we could take, and I'll talk about an accessory I like for doing beer can chicken, but we put our beer can chicken thing down in the bottom in a pan. Again, we can surround that pan with potatoes or something like that. Put our beer can chicken on it with that hole removed, and the chicken's now sitting down inside the grill with radiant heat around the sides coming at it at the, the bottom where it's thickest and it needs the most cooking time, and the breast is up higher. But the whole thing's lower in the system. What this also does, a lot of times that beer can chicken will fit under the hood of a Weber kettle, but the top of it's right up against the kettle top, and the radiant heat coming back and bouncing off it overcooks it up at the top, where now we have more of this airflow. So that's another thing that we can do with that hole. But before I talk about more that we can do with the hole, let's talk about another accessory. The, the next product is, or the next accessory is called the Vortex. Uh, or if you, you look up the, kind of the aftermarket ones on Amazon, they call them a whirlpool, which I guess is Chinese trying to come up with uh, a word for Vortex that doesn't violate a trademark. Um, apparently, Vortex is trademarked, and Amazon doesn't sell the Vortex. It's sold on other sites, so you can look up uh, Weber Vortex if you want the official one, or you can get them on Amazon. Um, set, all said and done, just about everywhere I've seen them, they, you know, even when they're priced cheap at like 30 bucks, by the time you add shipping, you get up in about 45 bucks for these. There's also a thing called a Portex. Now, a Portex means somebody with some stainless steel made a funnel like this themselves. And uh, it's one of these things I look at this and go, this might be something some enterprising entrepreneur might be able to make and ship for less money if they think about how they do it. And uh, it, it might be a, a good product for the right entrepreneur because, you know, I'm all, all for the concept of somebody invented something, getting credit for it all, but this is a, this is a steel funnel. That's all that it is. Uh, the top opening is about 10 inches. The bottom diameter opening is about 6, and the whole thing is about 4.5 inches high. So it's not that big of an item, but being around it would be a pretty bulky container. That's probably why shipping is high. It's not on, um, it's not on Prime on Amazon for any of the options. Uh, the lowest price one is like 35 bucks. Uh, the one that I linked to is like 42 bucks. But when you add shipping, they come out within a couple pennies of each other. The one I link to actually comes out to less because it's not charging you 13 something for shipping. Okay, so that's why I picked the one that I did the link to. But you can get this type of product from anywhere. They all do the same thing. <clears throat> and there's four main setups that these were designed to do. And I believe the Commando uh, grill, which is kind of a, a, a knockoff of the egg, is the one that came up with this as one of their accessories. And, of course, it works in any damn round grill. And it probably work in a big enough square grill as well. What you can do with it, I'm going to give you the four basic cooking techniques that they recommend with it. Number one, um, we can do um, basically an infrared. So what we can do there is we set it small side down. We put charcoal all around it. We have that charcoal hot and going. And we can do something like a beer can chicken sitting down inside it. That would be one example of what we can do with it. Another example is we can turn it so the, the small side is up. We can fill it with charcoal. 
we can draw and maybe some wood chips and drop in on the top of it maybe a, a dozen hot coals that will slowly cook through and cook indirect in kind of a smoking model. Um, another option is we can just put it small side up and fill it with hot charcoal, you know, over ashed white going on charcoal. And then we have a sear and cook to the side, kind of like I just talked about with the slow and sear. And I have a feeling this thing would do a really good job with that. Uh, and then another option is we put it big side up and we put charcoal all around it and we use the snake method that I talked about earlier. So we drop some hot coals in one section and it slowly snakes around. And in the grill, on the grill top over top of the opening, we set something like a pork roast or a brisket or something and basically slow, low and slow smoke it. And we use that to create the opening for indirect heat. And we create that circle for that stuff to go around, kind of like I talked about doing with the bricks. And again, I think this would do better. This is the one accessory that I have today that I have not personally used yet. I've been thinking about ordering one. I probably will. Given it does a lot of what the Smokinator and Slow and Sear do, I'm, I'm kind of iffy on it. But I think it'll do more. And then on top of that, I think maybe it will make me decide to get rid of one of the other ones. I, I really don't know because I only want so much stuff around. There is another thing that I think this would do incredibly well, though. And it's, it's one of the bigger reasons I'm thinking about getting it. Kebabs. So instead of filling it for hot heat with the bottom pointing up, one could fill it with the, 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 the big side up with hot coals. Then you'd have a much larger hot surface area. Now you pop your center ring out of your grill that has the center ring removal, and you cook your kebabs directly over it. You still have indirect heat, just like I talked about doing the bricks, but I think this would do a better job. And it, it's one of those things I'm not going to talk too much about it because a lot of the techniques are like we've covered already. I haven't actually tried it yet, but this would be a good one for people to weigh in. If you own one of these, if you've made one, if you've bought one, you know, how do you like it? How do you think it compares to other things? But again, it's called the, on Amazon, it's called the Whirlpool. And again, that's, that's Chinese looking up, you know, probably, uh, you know, a thesaurus, English thesaurus war vortex, uh, cause it really ain't a good name for it. Um, it does come up on Amazon if you search for, uh, Weber Kettle Vortex or Big Green Egg Vortex. So it's coming up for those terms, but it's not called that. And again, you can find independent sites where you can buy the official Vortex. You're going to be about the same money out, and it's stainless steel in a cone. But I, I think that, and I haven't done it yet, but I think the, the methods that I've described using like a beer can chicken or something down inside there um, will work better because that steel is going to radiate that in a very much an infrared like. And my infrared gas grill, I love the way that thing cooks. So I, I, I'm probably going to buy one and play around with it. Uh, but I, I just think it's, a, it's an interesting uh, option there. Uh, a nice thing about it is a standard uh, aluminum pie tin, when you have it big side up, will fit perfectly in the bottom to catch drippings and things like that or to cook wonderful things like potatoes down there. I'm just saying. right? Don't forget all these techniques translate across these different accessories. So I tried to do today's show not like an infomercial for all these accessories, but by showing you how a lot of them can do the same type of thing. The next accessory I have, and I think it's a, a really cool uh, tool, and I've, I've recently featured it as an item of the day, is the King Cooker Leg and Wing Rack. Now, since the price went up on it on Amazon and it doesn't ship for free, I've looked for a rack that does the same thing that's better And from a functionality standpoint, I can't find one. 
And when I look at, the, I have two of them, and when I think, like, if I didn't have one and I knew what I knew about them, would I spend the extra money to get one? I probably would. Someone said they have them at Academy, which you may or may not have an Academy around you, for like eight bucks. Shipping will probably kill you if you buy it from Academy.com. You'll be back to the same point. But if you have one locally, you might want to go check for this thing. What it is is it's a, a stainless steel rack that kind of has these wobs, wobbles that go in and out, and you can either ha hang chicken legs or chicken wings from it. It'll hold 12 uh, wings or legs. It'll actually hold about 15 wings if you get a little bit creative with how you do it. What I want to talk about more right now, though, is why this works so well, because I want to talk about something with beer can chicken next, and I think a lot of people give too much credibility to the beer can when it comes to how a beer can chicken cooker makes a chicken so wonderful. Okay? So what makes this awesome is that because the leg or the wing is hanging, we're back to a kebab-like cooking, but we're not over direct heat. We're using radiant heat all the way around it. Because that skin is not in contact with metal, one thing it doesn't do is stick. But the other thing that it does is the, the skin cooks incredibly evenly all around. And that lets you run it long enough to get that skin to crisp. Chicken has a lot of fat in it. If we do something like the garlic chili oil uh, on it that I suggest, or just, you know, you take a squeeze bottle and keep it around with, with something like peanut oil in it and hit it with that and get a nice oil coating to it before you throw whatever seasonings you want on there. You're almost air frying it is what's going on. Because the, the, there's, even though a lot of the fat cooks out, a lot of oil and fat stays in that skin. It stays on the surface of that skin, and it's cooking as it's coming out, and that skin crisps up beautifully. So I, I really recommend, you know, a good wing and leg rack as an accessory for your cooking. It makes incredible chicken. Now, on, on beer can chicken, I actually am not a big fan of most of the beer can chicken uh, devices. I find that they are not very stable. Uh, your chicken wants to kind of tilt over, um, and I just think there's a better way to do it. The best product that I've found is made by a company called HIC Herald Imports, And it's called Elizabeth Caramel's Beer Can Chicken Porcelain Chicken Sitter. And it is, again, is what it sounds like. It's porcelain, and you've got your standard kind of beer can diameter top. But when it gets down to a certain point, it comes out to a big cone. And that big cone is very, very stable. And your chicken sits on that. And it gives it a lot more stability. And porcelain has a really nice way of transferring heat. Right, So as the grill heats up, as the chicken heats up, as the porcelain heats up, uh, unlike an open-framed metal thing, this is a solid porcelain. It does a lot of transfer of heat. And, of course, you can put your, your, your herbs and liquids and beer or whatever you want inside of it. You don't need to slide a can in there. Uh, you can just dump it in. It's probably the best way to go. Um, and I'll tell you, there is something to the whole, you know, the moisture and the steam going inside the chicken and all. But really, if you dry chicken out, you've cooked it wrong. And, and, and cooking that chicken with a beer can shoved in its ass isn't really going to change that. The reason beer can chicken comes out so beautifully is the same reason that rotisserie chicken comes out beautifully. Or uh, cooking chicken wings on a wing rack, they come out so beautifully. Or a kebab comes out with that beautiful kind of crusty skin around it. It's because it's cooked by air, and it's never in contact with a direct cooking service. And in this case, there's a little bit of that going on, but it's from the inside out with that heated porcelain warming the cavity. But the exterior is all cooked by air. 
And if you, if you ever look at how like some of the best chefs cook a chicken, they make pans. They're pretty expensive. I'll, maybe I'll feature one as an item of the day someday if I ever break down and buy one. But there'll be a pan that looks like a standard roasting pan for a chicken or a roast or something. But there'll be a tube that comes off, off of one end and it comes out. And you take the chicken and you put it over the tube so it's suspended in the air in the oven. That's, that's, see, a lot of this is like hokum, but yet it works. So you don't, if you don't understand the hokum, you don't understand why it works. You can stick a Budweiser in a chicken's ass, and if you cook it wrong, it's still going to be dry or it's not going to be done properly or what have you. If you, if you do the proper cooking technique and you get that, it doesn't almost matter how that chicken's suspended. You know, it's the same way they do, they do roasted ducks in China. They hang them in an oven so that they're roasted all around. If you could come up with a, a method to hang the chicken from the lid of the, of the, uh, the Weber kettle and just like set it on there, it would do the same thing. It might do it better. But that would be kind of messy and annoying and whatever, where this is a lot more stable. So, so that, that kind of wraps it up. And I'm, today's show went pretty long, and I'm sure there's people like, he didn't include a rotisserie. Um, you know, maybe we'll talk about this. He didn't include a rib rack. Maybe we'll do a, a part two of this show, and we'll talk about other techniques and other recipes and other things. But I just there's no way I could cram everything that you can do with a Weber kettle into something like this. There's a lot of things. I, I wanted to throw a few things that don't really involve any accessories here at the end that I do with Weber kettles that I think a lot of people don't realize you can do. I love to do fish steaks. And, and my two favorite ways are one you buy and the other one you, you, you self-produce. The ones you buy are salmon steaks. You do a salmon steak, you take salt and pepper, sprinkle both sides of a salmon steak, get your, well, your temperature right, have a good clean grill surface, you know, hit it with a wire brush and what have you. Before you put your salt and pepper on your salmon, brush it with a little bit of olive oil or a little bit of peanut oil, and you just take the whole thing and just throw it on the grill. It's not going to stick. It's not going to fall apart. It's not going to break. And cook it till it's done to your liking. Flipping it, you know, halfway through the cook and getting a nice sear on the outside of the salmon. Put that on a plate with uh, some asparagus and potatoes. Freaking fantastic. Absolutely freaking fantastic. And that's it. That's all you got to do. Catfish. When you catch larger channel cats, I'm talking fish here, 26 to 32 inches. Kind of anything on a channel cat that's bigger than that, I'm probably going to let go because it needs to be breeding. Um, catfish of that size, what you do... You can skin them if you want to. To me, it's just too much work. Uh, the skin's going to come right off them anyway if you do what I say. So you gut them, cut the head off. And you cut steaks about an inch and a quarter to an inch and a half thick. You, you just cut, use a, a straight-edge knife, cut down, and when you get to the bone, you usually go right through. If it's a bigger fish, take a serrated knife and go through, or use an electric knife and just straight through and cut your steaks. All the way down till you get to like you know where the tail gets to where it's too small to worry about doing that anymore. Uh, then you, if you want to, you can fillet those last two little pieces off and flip them over and just take the skin off them like you would any fish. And then those are two little like frying pieces of, of catfish uh, that'll be about the size of a small catfish's fillets. So you're going to go down all the way till you get out of the body cavity on a bigger catfish and maybe halfway toward the tail before it gets to where you're just going to fillet it off. You take those, freeze them, throw them in a, a freezer bag, a, a, what do you call it, a vacuum seal bag. Uh, two to a bag, side by side, vac seal them, throw them in your freezer. Take them out, let them defrost, and do the same thing I said with the salmon. Don't worry, it's slimy skin. It, it doesn't matter. It's going to come right off. It's out on the little ring on the edge. When, you, when you're done cooking it, it'll peel off like the outside of a freaking, uh, like a, outside of a peelable salami, except it'll be easier. If you really want to go through the hassle to freaking 
skin a catfish you can, but I mean, that's as simple as, as it can be. Um, a, a skewer recipe, so this does require some sort of creativity in skewers, but this would be one that the metal skewers that I've given you probably aren't best for. This is one you're going to go to bamboo skewers, and uh, this can be done straight on the grill instead of a typical skewer, but you want to be over nice hot coals because you're not. You're, this is going to be done very, very quickly, and if you can get over some sort of a thing that get, keeps it off the, off the grate, fine, but don't let, let yourself not try this. If, if you, you don't want to do that. And it's a little trickier with bamboo. It's a little more likely to catch on fire on you. But again, you take your bamboo skewers, you soak them in water for a couple hours before you make up your skewers. And what I'm going to suggest is if you can find some place you can get them, and I finally found a place I can, I'm so stoked about it, is chicken hearts. Yes, chicken, not livers, hearts. And what we're going to do, and I came up with this for quail, and I'll talk about how we do it with toothpicks for quail in a second. But we're going to take some jalapeno peppers, And we'll cut them into like four sides each. So you just take a knife and cut them into four sides each. And then cut them into squares. About the size of the square size, about the size of a chicken heart. And you take a chicken heart, put it on the skewer. Put a jalapeno pepper on the skewer. Take a chicken heart on the skewer. You just keep alternating them like that. Salt, pepper, garlic. That's all you need on them. And then do that over high heat till the hearts are just done. If you overcook a heart, it turns rubbery. And people are freaky because it's a heart. It's a heart. It's a muscle. It's a, the heart is not a typical organ. It's, it's the only organ I know of that's a muscle. It's basically another piece of meat. Those are fantastic. Great base for that. A cup of beer. A half cup of soy sauce. A jigger or two of uh, Worcestershire sauce. A little bit of honey. And that's all. Mix that up and take a brush. And as it's cooking, raise it with that. And that honey will make it get kind of a char and a crisp to it. That's fantastic. You can do that with anything. But that's really, really simple. And it's like, you can usually find, even the place that we, we buy them from, it's a place that does like pastured poultry, grass-fed beef. It's a very high-end place that sells to yuppies in downtown Fort Worth um, uh, called Burgundy Local. And the stuff's expensive. We sell our eggs to them for $8 a dozen. We sell them in half dozen uh, things. And I think they sell at like $14 or, or, or more per dozen, something like that. And they, they move them too. They move them out. Uh, the, but the chicken hearts are not expensive because it's an extra product that doesn't move as well. So I, you know, I finally found a source of those. They're in such a large package that what I've started doing is I'll buy them fresh because they can be fresh or frozen. I'll buy them fresh and I'll break them into two halves and that way I can freeze one. And because my wife doesn't need them, so I can make enough for myself. If I want to do them for friends or people coming over, I can take two packages out. So that's another really easy thing. Quail hearts, this is how that recipe came up. My buddy David and I were grilling some quail, and we had just cleaned them. I think we cleaned like eight quail. And uh, I had a pepper sitting there, and I just looked at these toothpicks, and I'm like, shit, we can't just, I mean, it's eight hearts. So usually what I do with quail is I'll process a bunch, and I'll end up with a big pile of them, and I just do salt and pepper and garlic and butter, and I'll saute them until they're just done in a pan. Uh, but I'm like, I'm not going to save eight hearts and like frying a pan, get a frying pan out for that just isn't worth it. So we took them and we soaked the toothpicks and we popped them on there and we just, we cooked them first and we ate them like an appetizer while we were grilling the quail. Oh my God, was that fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Now, what I wanted to finish with though is I wanted to give you um, an incredible marinade for chicken. And it's, this is a lemon pepper chicken, and lemon pepper chicken has been so overdone. Uh, lemon chicken, this lemon. But this 
The lemon is subtle because of the amount of lemon pepper used. The, the whole thing is fantastic. This is a marinade I'll make, and I'll do a whole bunch of chicken, boneless, skinless chicken thighs in, and we'll actually just fry them, and we'll put them in the refrigerator, and Dorothy will have them for lunch and things like that. But for a grilled chicken, this is fantastic. And it's good for breasts, but just whole, bone-in, skin-on chicken thighs. Uh, or another way to do it and cook a little bit faster is do skinless, skin on but bone out chicken thighs so they, they fold out. And that's really easy to do if, the, if you can't buy them already done that way. You just buy whole chicken thighs and just take your knife and go down the back of the bone on the thin side and then go underneath it and, on the, and it pops right out. Take all your bones and use them to make stock. Remember earlier when I said cut the backbone out of the chicken? Well, if you're going to do a chicken, the, so I'm going to back up a second. Let's say you're going to do the chicken, the butterfly herb chicken I talked about earlier with the potatoes, and you'd like some gravy to go with it. So your chicken, you get a whole chicken, it usually comes with a liver. It usually comes with the heart. It usually comes with a neck. Okay? So you take the, the heart, the liver, and the neck, you throw it in a pot. You take the backbone you cut out, you throw it in the pot. Your wing tips are going to be useless. Take your shears, cut the tips off of your, your wings, and throw them in a pot. Boil water to make stock. Okay? So once you have your stock boiled, then you're going to thicken that with a, with a uh, butter and flour roux, right? So uh, you, about, you know, per cup of stock that you end up with, about four tablespoons of butter and four tablespoons of flour and make a roux with that. So we put the, the butter into a, a saucepan and we start to melt it. And as it begins to melt, we sprinkle our flour in there and we mix it till we're cooking the flour. We don't want it in chunks or lumps. And then we dump our stock in to, to thicken that. And, 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 and that just goes fantastic with that herb to chicken. So anyway, that was an aside because this is stuff I get excited about. Um, let, let's go back to um, this, uh, this marinade for chicken. Here, here's the recipe, and I have a link to the uh, review I did of a, a provider of lemon pepper uh, as an Amazon item of the day uh, where this is all listed. So you don't have to write this down. You can just use the show notes and get a link over there and go get it. Here's what you need. One-third cup of olive oil juice of one half of a lemon, and the zest of that lemon as well. Two ounces of white wine, two teaspoons of rice wine vinegar, two teaspoons of lemon pepper, one teaspoon of sugar, one teaspoon of salt, one half teaspoon of onion powder, a half teaspoon of garlic powder, a half teaspoon of paprika, one half teaspoon of rosemary. If this is large needles, crumble it up to those little tiny pieces. Uh, you don't need to grind it, but crumble it up. And a half teaspoon of basil. All of those herbs should be dried, dried at those ratios. This is a dry, the marinades work better generally with dried herbs because as they rehydrate, they, they release their flavor into the marinade. Just, just kind of an aside as well. And then about one tablespoon of mustard or as much as you need to emulsify. So, What do I mean by emulsify? So since a third cup of olive oil is in this, along with lemon juice, white wine, rice wine vinegar, other liquids, as soon as we mix this all up, what the hell is going to happen? The, the water-based liquid and the oil-based liquids are going to separate. So generally I put this all into a ball jar. And then, I, like I said, I'll throw about a tablespoon of mustard in there. It's not really for flavoring. You just use plain old cheap mustard for this, um, or you can use a Dijon, or it doesn't matter. But mustard is one of the few things in the world that are great as emulsifiers. And you shake the marinade up. You shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, completely mixed and incorporated together, and set it down and, and wait a couple minutes. 
if after a couple minutes everything's still in suspension and hasn't separated out, you had enough mustard to emulsify. If it's separated, maybe you didn't do it enough, so give it another shake, give it another couple minute rest. If it stays separated, good. If not, add a little bit more mustard, just a little squirt, and just keep doing it until it stays separated. Now you have an emulsion. And that means your oil, your vinegar, your uh, your oil, your wine, uh, your vinegar, all of that is going to give a uniform coating to your chicken. Even though an emulsion a lot of times won't stay over a 24-hour period, the fact that it'll completely get coated onto your chicken while your marinade is going on, once that's done, you're good. It's going to ensure this even coating. Put all your chicken into a Ziploc bag, pour your marinade over it, zip the bag up, push the air out of it, and kind of massage it into the chicken. Again, you can do this with skinless cuts. I do skinless, boneless breasts and thighs this way, cooked on a pan. But on a boneless but skin-on chicken thigh, this stuff's fantastic. So marinate it for at least four hours, overnight's best. So you can make it up in the evening. You know, when you're when you're doing the dishes or whatever, make this up for the next night. Throw your chicken in, throw it in the refrigerator. Put the bag in a pot, a pan, a bowl, a dish because it will leak. It's going to leak. It might not leak this time, but the first time you don't put it in something, it's going to leak. Let it sit overnight. Take it out in the morning, uh, or take it out in the evening when you're going to cook it. Take it out about 30 minutes before you're going to cook with it. Uh, set it on like a drying rack and let it kind of sticky up. And then just do a do a basic hot grill and then finish indirect. So what I mean by that is get over your hot coals, get it almost cooked, don't let it burn on you, cook it skin side up until it's almost cooked, right? Because your skin's going to be a lot more likely to skin up on you. Flip it over to crisp your skin a little bit, and then if it still needs some cooking before you don't burn your skin, there's some sugar in there, move it over to indirect, cover it, let it finish. Oh my God, this is still fantastic. You will not believe how juicy chicken in this this is. And again, if you're one of these people like the lemon thing's been overdone, it's not over the top. Even with the zest, the juice, and the lemon pepper, it's not in your face. Especially if you use the Frontier Organics lemon pepper, it's it's that's why I like it. The lemon's there, it does its thing, but it's not one of those things like you just hit the face, bam, it's lemon, right? So those are some like real simple things you can do. You don't really need any accessories or or what have you, and it, it just shows you how simple and versatile this is. I could honestly cook on my Weber kettle every day. And, and and I would never get bored with it. I would never get bored because it. it's always like, well, what can I come up with? What can I do next? You know, again, like we'll talk about like if you guys if you guys want another one of these and you want me to go through some other things that you can do with the Weber kettle and some other accessories and stuff, let me know. If there's interest, I'll do a part two of this show. But but I hope you enjoyed today's show. So Remember, you can always support us by going through our links on our website. Shopping online at tspaz.com helps us. And uh, every day I actually have an item that I review on Amazon for you. And you might imagine what today's Amazon item of the day is the, the, the premium version of the Weber Kettle Grill. And it's one I've reviewed before, and I just kind of resurrected it, and it's there. And you can take a look at my review of it, and there's links in the show notes and all of that good stuff for the Weber Kettle. Uh, but I, I think it is one of the best grills. And I won't, since the whole show was about it, We'll just leave it there, and that's that's all I have for the item of the day today. Uh, so next up, we're going to get to our song of the day. Our song of the day is a song called Beautiful World by by Bon Jovi, as in John Bon Jovi. John Adams has been selecting these songs for each year. Again, we're in the year 2013 because the episode's 2013. Here's what he says. He says, everyone's journey in life is unique, and it's not our place to interfere. We have to learn to take the good with the bad 
as it is this contrast that makes life interesting and beautiful. And this song kind of presents the two sides of things where people kind of look at the world and say, man, a lot of stuff's shit or a lot of stuff's hard or my life sucks and things like that. And then, you know, all the flaws that are in the world, but isn't it a beautiful world? Isn't it amazing? And it talks about things like your first kiss in the back of a car. Right? That's an amazing moment for people. And, and, and there's so many little moments like that in life that we, we, we tend to let things come down on us. And we in the liberty and kind of modern survival movement, we're the worst about it. Because we're not afraid to look at the bad. But you know what? For heaven's sake, you can look at the bad, you can accept the bad and still see the beauty and the wonderful stuff and the stuff that is great. But what this song really is about, I think John kind of hit it, he said, everyone's journey in life is unique. This beautiful world spoken of in this song isn't just the whole wide beautiful world that is. It's, a, it's an understanding and a recognition. There isn't one world. That's something we've been lied to and deceived about because it's a very collectivist message. And Of course, mathematically speaking, there's one planet Earth. But what makes things real to us is observation. There's actually some cutting-edge theoretical things in, in, in theoretical physics that say the observation of matter actually is what makes matter coalesce. But we won't go there today. We don't need to go that deep. But what I'm saying is, in the words of Richard Bach, there's as many worlds as there are people within what we call the world. You see your world your way. And somebody standing right next to you sees a completely different world. They have a completely different perception. You both might look at the same mountain range and find it beautiful, and like if you're in the same place looking at the same mountains, but it means something different to both of you. To one of you, it might be the first time you've ever seen something like that. It opens up a whole new inspiring awe. And to the other person, it may be the most nostalgic. Like it will take them back to memories of, of what mountains mean to them. And to someone else, it might mean a challenge that they wish to climb. And that's when we're looking at the exact same thing at the exact same moment in time. If you think you live in the same world as an auto mechanic that works in Detroit, or the same world as a hippie redneck farmer that you listen to every day, I'm sorry you're wrong. We can share a lot of overlap and a lot of things. But we all create our own worlds for ourselves. And therefore it's up to us to design in things that are beautiful. To make wonderful things happen. And to deal with adversity in a way that says, I'm not done yet. I'm not going down when adversity comes our way. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Every day is the same when they say that it might be the end. In the end, when it ends, then I'll listen to them. You wake up, go to work, go to sleep, then you do it. You do it. If you're lucky, then you do it. Crap.
Yeah. 